have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. As we make our way at quite the snail's pace through this book, we're going to slow down majorly this week. We're going to preach on five words. So, if you want to get done with Ephesians anytime soon, this would not be the church to do it in. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter 2. I want to give a disclaimer as we work through this. Um, later on, part of my outline um, was deeply encouraged by um, the preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. As many of you know, that was the voice of the gentleman on there. We don't, he's any kind of church prophet or anything weird like that. He's just a good preacher who preached a very good series of 256 sermons through the book of Ephesians. And you thought we were going slow. So, um, anyways, just wanted to throw that out there. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read verses 11, 12, and 13, and I'll show you right where we're going to zero in this morning. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But where we're going to zero in this morning is... But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near, and particularly the phrase, by the blood of Christ. We're going to spend all day today primarily talking about brought near by the blood of Christ. Particularly the blood of Christ. Brought by the blood of Christ. I want to pray for us again. Fathers, we study your word this morning. May anything that I have to say uh, that is just me, may that be burned from our ears forever. And Father, anything that you have to say to us from your word this morning, may it be burned into our hearts forever. Lord, thank you. Be faithful in that, please. It's in Jesus' name, amen. And so, this phrase, particularly, by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ. For many of you, this is, for some of you maybe, this is a phrase that maybe doesn't seem super familiar. Maybe it's, you know, like, okay, by the blood, alright, I, I think that has something to do with Christians and salvation, but what is, what is okay, what does that mean? And I, I pray, here's my prayer for you today, that this gruesome phrase will draw you to trust in the good news of Jesus. That will draw you to trust that His blood shed from the cross can wipe away your sin. 
I pray that for you today. As the Bible says in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. And we will dwell with Him forever. You can go read that later, Revelation 21. But your tears, our tears cannot be wiped away unless our sin has been wiped away first. And death can be no more for us until the blood from the death of Jesus covers us. And so my prayer if this is not a familiar phrase, that it would become a phrase that you cannot get out of your mind. For many of you, on the other side of this, for many of you, this is such a common phrase that you've grown too accustomed to the jargon. Ah, oh, yeah, something I've, I've believed most of my life. I can't remember hardly a day that I didn't believe it. Or, or I go many weeks without thinking about it. I mean, this phrase contributes to kind of the white noise of modern-day church. At least, relatively conservative modern-day churches. The more we hear something, the less we tend to contemplate its meaning and importance. And unfortunately, this is extremely dangerous for the church. See, God's people are a thinking people. God's people are a people of thought and contemplation. We are people, as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, the last part of verse 5 says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here we have today a thought, and that thought is by the blood of Christ. And that is a thought that I fear for many of us has just become some distant thought of the past. My fear is that all of us, to some measure, myself included, have gotten caught up in so much of the doing of life's good things and even honoring things, but we've done so to the neglect of thoughtful contemplation on the things of God, things such as by the blood of Christ. And so that's part of the reason why I wanted to take this week and zero in. This is what Paul's doing. In many ways, this is Paul's desire at this point in the text. You see, these people, the people in Ephesus, are much like us in the sense that they knew this. They had been told this. They would have been taught this. They would have known that God had chosen them for salvation, that God had created good works for them to do. They would have even known that it was only by the blood that they have been saved. And yet, Paul reminds them. He tells them afresh. He tells them once again. It's by the blood. In church, much as them in Ephesus, just the same for us. This is the truth that we cannot forget. We cannot forget this phrase. You will not honor God in any way if you forget the blood by which you were saved. You will not overcome sin if you forget about the blood that set you free. And you will not persevere to the end if the blood becomes a distant thought of the past. And you say, why, Matt? Why such extreme statements? Because God has always, always, always worked with His people through covenants and more specifically through blood-stained covenants. 
Not just covenants, promises, or agreements, but blood-stained ones. Beautifully blood-stained covenants of grace. God has always done it that way. Not once, though, I want to remind you, when I say of grace, I want to remind you that not once, though, has the blood been ours. Not once did we do something to earn the blood that could possibly stain the covenant and so ratify it. It's all been by grace. That is why we cannot forget the blood. That's why such extreme statements. We cannot forget the blood by which we were saved. And this is what I want to talk about today. Ephesians 2 is 13. Remind us again. We're going to read this probably 15 times, or well, if not more, this morning. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who, you who once were far off have been brought near. I want to, the first thing I want you to see is that the blood has to do with the presence of God. I want to take you through what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take a very quick overview of the presence of God as it's related to this passage. So I want to do a very quick overview. I want you to see that the blood serves the purpose of preparing for the presence of God. The blood serves the purpose of preparing for the presence of God. This is why, part of why, just a side note here, this one's free. Presenting the gospel cannot be just about getting to heaven, and certainly not primarily about just getting to heaven. But yet we hear the gospel preached all the time. If you want to go to heaven, do this. No, it should be, if you want the presence of God, do this. Believe this. Because here's the deal. Many people want the gifts of heaven, but they don't really want God. That's not salvation. I think you'll see that today. God's goal is not to get you to heaven. God's goal is to get you to dwell with Him. Okay? So the presence, when we think about the preparing for the presence of God, this God, this, the presence of the Almighty God, holy and majestic, righteous and pure, all-powerful and wise. I think the entire narrative of Scripture suggests that the past, present, and, well, for you guys, the past, present, and future realities of redemption are inextricably tied to God's drawing near to His people. They are about God and His people coming together. But this is not some mystical feeling or an emotional change that or charge that we're talking about. We're talking about positionally being changed concerning you and I and God. That our position is changed. I want you to keep that in your mind today as we work through this text. We're not talking about some emotional, do I feel near to God? We're talking about, are we near God? Have we been brought near God? And how was it so? You see, the presence of God is a fundamental objective in our redemption and simultaneously the means by which God completes this objective, right? And we're going to dive through that, and we'll flesh that out a little bit more. Let me restate that in two separate sentences. The fundamental goal of our redemption is God drawing His people near so that His presence dwells among them. At the same time, the means by which God accomplishes this goal is by drawing a people near to His presence. 
All right, so that's what we're going to kind of flesh out for the next few moments. Again, he says, you who were far off have been brought near. That's where we're spending our time for the next few moments. So what I want to do is to walk you through very quickly three covenants in the Old Testament and show you where the nearness of God and the blood have always been together. Okay? I want you to see those two things. They're together. The first one is this, what we call the Adamic covenant or the covenant made with Adam. Right? Adam and Eve were charged with expanding the presence where God would be near to his people. Usually we miss that when it comes to Adam and Eve, but I believe the goal of the garden was not just to maintain this cute little garden, but was to actually spread God's image across the earth where God would dwell with his people, not just in Eden, but beyond. Now there was no need for shedding of blood at this point because no sin had entered in between the nearness of the relationship between Adam and Eve. As we all know, though, what happens in the garden, right? They fail at spreading God's presence throughout the cosmos because they were only concerned ultimately with spreading their own presence. And so we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I just want you to notice two things here. Notice that they are no longer enjoying the presence of God. The presence of God is no longer something to be enjoyed. It's something to be, uh, <clears throat> to avoid. Right? Because they hid themselves from the presence of God. Notice also that God's presence came to their rescue. Right? God still came to his people. Man. Where are you? Then Genesis 3, a little bit later in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. All I want you to see is two things here. Notice how the presence of sin, now that sin is present, is tied to the nakedness of man. That their shame and their sin is exposed. Then I want you to notice how the presence of God is tied to the covering of this shame and this sin. This is where I think very first we see this foreshadowing of shed blood on behalf of someone else. Now after this, what happens? God bans them from His presence in the garden. No more. You should leave. Then a good bit of history takes place. And we come to you know, Noah and the flood happens and all that. And then we come, I want to skip through all of that. And we come to what we would next call the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that God made with his servant Abraham. Now Abraham was going to be brought to a land where he would enjoy the presence of God. And he would be God's people. That he would be the leader of God's people. And he would enjoy their presence. Genesis 15, 9 through 10. I want to show you this here. Genesis 15, 9 through 10. He said to him, this is God speaking to Abraham. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. 
but he did not cut the birds in half. What was happening? What's happening here? God was going to ratify this covenant, this promise to Abraham that you will be my people, we will bless the world, I will bless the world through you, you will live in my presence. This is what was happening. God was ratifying this covenant with the splitting of these animals. Now, if you didn't realize, the splitting of animals would involve some blood, right? Then we get to verse 17 through 18 of chapter 15. It says this, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Right, pieces here, and a flaming torch walks between them. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now what's happened is God was ratifying this covenant. But what you see here that is interesting, what you see here is that only the torch walks in between. Traditionally what would happen is both parties would walk between to say this is the covenant that we agree to. But here you see that the only torch, only the torch walks in between, not Abraham. And I think what we see here is that God is the only one who will be able to keep the covenant. And as we know from beyond this context, why? Because the other party is dead. Right? We know that from Ephesians 2, verse, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Why couldn't Abraham walk through? Because he was dead. Spiritually dead, of course. All right, then walk through history. God's working with His people, living out this covenant. You, you get to the Mosaic Covenant where God's going to institute the sacrificial system. And I'm not going to spend time working through all that, but what you see in the sacrificial system is God providing a means by which they could temporarily atone for their sin, meaning they could offer up a sacrifice where this animal dies in the place of another in the place of the people of God. And therefore, their sin could be paid for, at least temporarily. <clears throat> then you have the Davidic covenant, and then we get to Jeremiah 31, where we see the new covenant. So I'm going to spend a few moments here. The new covenant. The new covenant. New covenant It's not something that just begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's always been God's plan from the very beginning. And we see it prophesied in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. This new covenant that God would give a people a new heart that worships Him as He has forgiven their sin and now dwells with them. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 through 34, I'll read this for you. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We want you to notice two things once again. One is, notice here, that he will write his law slash character on their hearts. He's going to do something to their dead heart. And he will be their God, and they shall be his people. This is an allusion to, it's an allusion to them enjoying the presence of God. Them being with God. 
Except now, it's not just going to be that they dwell in the same geographical location as God, but now something's going to happen internally. Something's going to change inside of them. The second thing I want you to notice is that in order for this to happen, in order for this to take place, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What has to happen? Something has to happen to the sin that makes filthy the place where God's going to dwell. In order for these to be his people, he will forgive their iniquity and remember their offense no more. All of that said brings us to this question. If God is going to once again dwell with his people, and to do so, he's going to deal with their iniquity, their sin. The question is this, simply. How so? How so? How will this covenant be ratified? What will seal this covenant into place? What will bring it into being? What will say, this is my covenant and this is what I'm going to do? What will cover over the sins of God's people such that he will remember them no more? I mean, that's really what we, if we understand sin and depravity, that's what we need to be asking when we get, how's he going to do it? I'll remember their sin no more, but he's holy and righteous and, and just. How can he just remember their sins no more? That would not be a good judge. Here's a murderer. I, well, I'm just going to forget that you ever did that. Please, please move on. Or, I'm going to forget that you did that. Hey, can I come over for dinner tonight? Like, that wouldn't be a good judge. And, and I, I want to propose, as a side note here, he's going to do it the same way. As he's always done it. And for that, I think we should see such continuity, such similarity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, verse 13. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, the sacrificial and cleansing blood prepares the way for the presence of God. The shed blood of His Son, Jesus, is all about the presence of God. I want you to imagine with me for just a second. Just close your eyes. Imagine with me for just a second. Close your eyes. In the presence of the Father, in the presence of the Father, His children, who were slaves to sin, beaten and broken by the world, without hope in the world, are now forgiven of their sins and broken no more, covered in the blood of His only Son, Jesus, who stands next to Him as the one who rescued His children and brought them home. His people, covered in His blood, standing before their Father. Imagine, you can look, and open your eyes. You see, the blood is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. If being in the presence of God is truly living, then it is the blood of the Son that pumps through our veins. 
Look what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says. He says, if we are not clear about this, speaking of by the blood or through the blood, then we cannot be right anywhere. So just for a brief second, when you talk about the good news of the gospel, you cannot leave out the blood. The good news of Jesus Christ is a bloody news. And when you look at your own life, and as you think about the lives of those around you, know this, unless they walk covered in the precious blood of Jesus, they have never known God. We can look all throughout scriptures for evidences of what it means to walk around covered in the blood. Certainly, first and foremost, would be repentance and faith. Living in faith, repentance of sin, denouncing all self-righteousness, proclaiming belief in the blood that covers our sin, and actually believing that and depending on that. Church, you were not just covered in the blood the moment you were saved. You will stand before God someday for all of eternity covered in the blood of His Son, Jesus. It's a once-for-all thing. So I do mean walking in this. If you're not walking around covered in the blood, then you were never covered in the blood. The blood's something you can't get off. You see, the blood speaks against any other means of drawing near to God. Any other, any other means. There are no other means. Just a few brief ones here. It's not because of obedience to the law. Ten commandments specifically or otherwise. We cannot draw near to God simply by obedience to the law. Again, I'm talking about positionally. Meaning, we go from being far from God, being brought near to God, we are now His children, His saved people. You cannot cross that gap by keeping the law. But at the same time, I want to encourage you, the law is a blessing to us who have been redeemed, for it did two things. One, it showed us that on our own, we could never make ourselves right before God. That's a blessing. Otherwise, we'd continue trying to figure out our own way to God. So guys, here's my law, and it reveals to you, stop searching to make it on your own. You can't do it. And then the second way it is a blessing is that the law shows us the character of God and how we then ought to live subsequent to having been brought near to God. So it shows us, it makes very clear that the pathway to salvation is not in us. It's not by obedience to the law. Why? Because we could never keep it. The second thing that the blood speaks against as an alternative means of drawing near to God is by some mystical or ambiguous call upon God. I want to linger here for just a moment. All right? So if you're writing, if you're taking notes, a mystical or ambiguous call upon God. We live in a culture where it is common to have this kind of ambiguous call to God. I hear people all the time when speaking in terms like this. Well, I know God. I mean, how many, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who will claim, well, I don't know God, at least in our culture here. Or, well, so-and-so in my life knew God at one time. 
Well, I just hope this person gets to know God. I mean, what does that even mean? I know God. I mean, Satan and his demons know God. You see, though, a person has never truly known God until they have known the blood. They have never truly known God until they have known the blood. The covenant of promise, salvation through Jesus, cannot be had apart from the shedding of the blood, the knowing of the blood, the being covered in the blood. So someone who says they know God, but they don't know the blood, they don't really know God. The only way to know God is through the blood. We'll look at that a little bit later. Again, are these people walking around covered in the blood? The third thing that I would say that it the blood denounces as a means by which to draw near to God is primarily by Jesus' teaching. It's not primarily by his teaching. I want to flesh that out specifically here. One of the false gospels of our day is this. Let's just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Right? What they mean by that is I'm going to cherry pick what Jesus says and that which makes me feel good I'm going to uphold. I mean, this culture tries to use this argument against us in the LGBT debate. Oh, Jesus is loving. He would let us do what we want to do. But we do this when we begin to think that our nearness to God is fundamentally and primarily a product of my following the teaching of Christ. It's not. It's a result of. There's a very huge distinction there. I follow the teachings of Christ because God has brought me near by the blood, not I am brought near by my following the teachings of Christ. Again, speaking positionally. I like what Dr. Jones says this in reference to following his teaching as a means of drawing near to God. He says this, When you realize that God is interested in a desire as much as in a deed, in a motive as much as in an action, that the look is as bad as the act in God's sight, then you realize that Christ's teaching condemns you completely. And not just your actions are condemnable, but your thoughts and your desires are worthy of condemnation as well. I mean, let's think about this. Who of us could really follow Jesus? It couldn't be following his example that brings me into the presence of God positionally because I could never fully follow Jesus. It's not his example that brings me near speaking position. The fourth and final one is this. Knowing simply that God is love does not bring me near. Knowing simply that God is love does not bring me near. Another false gospel of our day. Another false gospel of our day is God is love and He'll just make everything right. God is loving. He wouldn't do that. What our world means is, and what we even can fall trapped to, is that 
Well, God is love, so he's not going to do anything except for that which I want him to do. I will draw and distinguish what this love looks like. Jones says, if people only knew that God is a God of love, they would rush into his presence. Right, that's the thinking. And a lot of churches fall into this trap. We just paint that God is love, and God is love, and God is love. People will just come, they'll just come rushing in. Instead, I think what we see is quite the opposite. That if God is a God of love, then He would support me in doing whatever makes me happy. He'll forgive me. And we must be careful because we don't fall into this trap as well. God loves me, and so therefore my pursuit of righteousness, my pursuit of holiness, my pursuit of the knowledge of God and knowing Him, it can be subpar. It can be lacking because... Oh, God loves me and everything will be okay. So these four things, there are many, 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 many other things that, that the blood speaks against as a means of drawing near to God. You see, there is only one way that Christ can bring us near to God. And this is by His blood and by His death. Okay? It's by His blood, it's by His death. I want you to see three things this morning concerning this. The first one is this. The blood is something that must be done to you. The blood is something that must be done to you. If you look back at the text, look at verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have what? Have said yes, and then finally God has brought you near. What's it say? You said a sinner's prayer, and now God has brought you near. No, it says that God has done this. God has done this. That this bloody covering of Christ has been done to you. If it's something that you can do part of, and then God can finish it, then it isn't grace, it's cooperation. It's you doing enough to get grace. It's not as I heard a preacher say, say yes and God will do the rest. That's that's what Paul's trying to paint here, is that you are dead, you can't say yes. You're dead. Let me give you another example. 1 Corinthians 5.19 says, That is, in Christ God, and I'm going to encourage you, go read this, make sure I'm not pointing out of context. Go read verse 19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against Him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God was doing this. God was reconciling the world to himself. So I have to ask this question. How many ways do you try to draw near unto God and leave Jesus out of the picture? So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how do you draw, try to draw near to God and leave Jesus out of the picture? How often do you call upon the name of the Lord and forget Jesus? I'm not trying to get you to be legalistic in the words that you say. That's not the goal. But how many times do you talk to God and forget, forget that the only means by which you can speak to God is because of the blood of Jesus? I'm not saying make say magical words. Or you have to end all your prayers in the name of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I, that's not what I'm saying. I do that in, his, in the name of Jesus. I do that because it's a reminder to me. It's a reminder that I'm speaking to God only because the blood of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me, right? No one can come to the Father except through me. Don't try to go to the Father except through Jesus. There is no way to draw near to God except in and through the Son of God. And it's not just because we are in Christ, although that is certainly part of it and a big part of it, but it's by the blood. Why? We'll get to that in a second. Why is it by the blood that we can call upon the name of the Lord and draw near and walk into His presence? For a second here, I want to remind you, this is why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. We're going we're gonna to partake in communion today. That was intentional. Why did He give us the Lord's Supper? To perpetually remind us that this is the only way into the presence of of God. The broken bread, the poured out wine. There's nothing magical in those things. Um, there's nothing, you know, fancy about the blood or about or about the wine or well, we use grape juice uh, or the broken bread. There's nothing matter. What what they're meant to do is remind us of something very magical, something very awesome. And that is the blood that was poured out from that broken body. And what it did. So how does God do this, though? How is it that God actually brings us near? Remember, John 30, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, 34b says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the blood... The blood does two, two very important things. If you don't remember anything that I've said this morning, I want you to remember these two things. That first of all, God's presence in the blood brings us near by washing away our sins. God's presence in the blood brings us near by washing away our sins. Again, I'm not talking about communion. I'm not, it's not we take communion and that washes away. I'm not even talking anything like that, even though I just mentioned communion. Communion or the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of that reality. That that's what Jesus did. That's what God did through Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple big words here. First one is this, propitiation. Right? If you don't know what that word means, write it down. Propitiation. It involves the idea of absorbing the wrath of God so that God might look upon us favorably. Right? Propitiation has to do with God's looking upon us differently. How does that happen? That's the second word. Expiation. Again, another big word. Write it down. Both of these words are in your Bible, by the way. They're not made-up theologian words. Uh, expiation. What is expiation? Expiation is specifically the washing away of our sins. It's the washing away of our sins. That's crazy. That the idea that expiation would even exist. That God could somehow wash away our sins. 
Let me run you through a few New Testament verses here. John 1, 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Who is this? JTB, right? As Rusty would say. John the Baptist. Right? The next day, John the Baptist, or JTB, saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what is John saying? I mean, this is the people that have been sacrificing and, and, and every year going to the temple and, and making sacrifice and atonement for their sins and through God's provided means. And all of a sudden, and they have to, again, they have to do that every year Year after year after year, they've been doing it for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist says, Behold, here comes a lamb, a sacrifice, who will not just provide the sacrifice for today, tomorrow, or the next 365 days, but he will take it away. He will take it all away. You see, all the blood shed to ratify God's covenants, all the sacrifices made as temporary atonement for God's covenant people, all of it, all of it sums up in the Lamb of God. So when John is saying this, it's not like the sky is tearing open. Here comes the Lamb of God, and He will take away the sins of the world. Now why a sacrifice? Why must someone die? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus Lord. But I want you to see the first phrase. For the wages of sin is death. Any sin requires death. God decreed that only a sacrificial and atoning death can cover this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sin. So God's punishment for sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death, separation from God for all of eternity. So why did Jesus come into the world? To taste death for His people. To taste death. To overcome death. Hebrews 2.9 But we see Him who for a little while, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that, by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. What happened on the cross? God made him to be sin for us. He made him to be sin for us. His son, the perfect lamb of God, never sinned, not an imperfection, never once a rebellious thought towards the Father, never once anything but pure, infinite joy and satisfaction in his Father. And he says, I'm going to put the sin of my people on you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He took my sin and He put them on Jesus. 
and His blood then spilt wiped them away. Wiped them away. Wiped them away. He took my debt. He demanded the penalty from Jesus and Jesus gladly paid it. And Paul brings this into Ephesians because without the blood there is no forgiveness. Before you and I can draw near to God, before God can draw near to us, something has to be done about our sin. I mean, go back, even look at the temple and what would happen with the temple and the tabernacle and these things. The temple had to be washed clean in order for the presence of God to indwell. But the thing is, is you and I can do nothing about our sin except increase it. And here Paul says that our sin has been taken away. It's been wiped clean. The second thing I want you to see is that the new covenant in Christ is ratified by the blood. It is sealed by the blood. See, the temple was sanctified and consecrated in the same way. That's where the presence of God dwelt with His people for thousands of years. The temple was sanctified and consecrated the same way. But under the new covenant, the blood of sheep and bulls are no more. You see, those could only partially, temporarily atone for sin. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 17. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can, see this, never take away sins. Read, never wipe away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then read this, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me read it again. For by a single offering, He has perfected, read, wiped away all of their sins for all time. For those who are being sanctified. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, Verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will, what's he say? I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. How's he, how's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? 
How's he going to seal the covenant? How's he going to wipe away their sins? Because Jesus is going to come and offer a once and for all sacrifice that will perfect his people by wiping away their sin. That's why Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11 that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant. What's he saying? It's the, it's the covenant made with God that is stained with my blood. Jesus' blood is the only thing that could seal this kind of covenant. So my question is this. Have you been brought near? If you are still thinking the following, then you are still very, very, very far away. If I can do enough good, then God will let me in. You are still very, very far away. If I can just fix this part of my life, then God can save me. You are still very, very far away. If I can just deal with my past, then I'll be ready for God to save me. You are still very, very far away. See, we can never, never draw near to God apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, as churches, people following, God can never forget the blood. The pathway The pathway to God's presence has always been covered in blood. The payment for sin has always been the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood just means simply death. And the blood that comes from this is evidence of this death. And the payment for sin against an infinitely holy God is death. Blood must be shed as a result of this death. This blood required in order to be near to God is God's commandment. It's not God's suggestion. It's not a way, it's the way. But God, I want to think about that for just a second. But God, though rich in His mercy and grace, made this pathway in such a way that someone else could pay the penalty on behalf of the other. Think about that. That's what we call substitutionary atonement. Someone else could pay the price for another. Now if the penalty is death, then no matter what, someone has to die. Your sin necessitates someone dying as a price paid for that sin. Now in the Old Testament, the way into the presence of God was by means of a temporary substitutionary atonement made by the animal that God provided. The animal would die, the blood would be shed, and cover temporarily the people of God. And the new covenant, though the way into the presence of God, is by means of a once and for all substitution, substitutionary atonement made by Jesus Christ. He died, His blood was shed, In the place of God's people, His blood then doesn't just cover our sin, but it washes our sin away. And what's it do? It prepares us for the presence of God. You see, God's covenants have always been beautifully stained with blood. Always. But it has never once been our blood. Ever. 
Our gracious God has made a pathway to His presence that doesn't involve our doing, just His doing, so that one day we might enjoy His presence in even greater reality than we do even this day. Christian, do you enjoy God's presence? Maybe if you enjoy God's presence more than you overcome sin and you'd read your Bible and you'd live faithfully, do you enjoy God's presence? He's prepared the way for you into His presence. And God, as we know, when the Holy Spirit comes, He indwells us. Like The presence of God is upon us in many ways, as Jesus said. The kingdom of God is upon you. When we are washed with the blood, the presence of God is upon us. That this presence, that this presence of God would fill the earth amidst a blood-washed people proclaiming to the world that God can take a rebel, wash his great sin away in a single swoop, and give him a heart that now clearly bears accurately and clearly the image of the God of the universe. See, the blood is about the presence of God. It's about God's people washed in the blood. Now God indwells His people. And then His people are to go make disciples. What are they doing? They are spreading God's presence around the world. Revelation 21, verse 1-4 through says this, Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Think about that. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God's broken people will be healed. And we will be his people, and he will be our God. How? By the blood. By the blood. I want to pray for us. Um, and then we're going to have communion. Um, we have a couple that's going to come up in service. Um, you guys know the drill, and to encourage you that not to partake unless you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and not to partake if you have sin in your life. You are a follower of Jesus Christ, but you have sin in your life that you're unrepentant for. Repent. Then partake. And then we'll just do this row at a time. We'll come and we'll sing a couple songs and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blood of your Son, Jesus. Thank you that it didn't require my blood. For my blood would take an eternity to repay the sins that I have transgressed against you, Father. But the blood of your Son could pay for all of my sins and all of the sins of all of your children in just a matter of moments. Why? 
because His blood is of you, Father. And so, Father, as we partake this morning, may we be reminded, may we never partake in communion and the Lord's Supper the same way ever again. May we not forget this phrase. May we walk every day thinking, by His blood. I breathe today by His blood. I think righteous thoughts today because of His blood. I can speak to my Heavenly Father by the blood. And that one day I will enjoy You, Father, for all of eternity by the blood. And may we not forget that that blood washed us the day that You saved us, Father. And Your presence is with us. May we live that way. May people be encouraged to live faithfully for you, Father, as they enjoy your presence. In your son's name we pray.